This morning we begin to look at the heart of the letter of Jude, the place where he calls these believers to action. And this happens, of course, after what we've already looked at, a very important introduction that we looked at together in verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, you may remember, we learned several uh, and various important lessons uh, from the difficulties of the book that we will study. And they are many uh, and have always been in church history, but we learn from those difficulties. We learned as well from the author Jude as he identifies himself as a a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we learn a lot from the recipients of this book as Jude speaks of them here as those who are called and those who are beloved in God and kept for Jesus Christ. Last week, as we studied uh, verse 2, we looked very closely at that verse, which is a beautiful, incredibly important benediction from the Lord in the form of a prayer uh, by Jude. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is, on his behalf, a holy longing for them to know more and more and more multiplied mercy, peace, and love of God. And that is what Jude prayed for them and what we ought to yearn for as well. This morning, we're going to begin to look at the body of the letter, uh, really just verse 3. We're moving slowly. It's a short book. But there's so much here that is worthy of our study, careful study. And I have personally always found this the most interesting part of the letter. It seems that Jude was fully intending on writing a letter that simply celebrates the wonder of the gospel and of our common faith together, our common salvation. That was his clear intent as he writes in these verses But it seems that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and because of some reports that no doubt he had received from those who had brought him uh, those reports, he is led by the Holy Spirit to change the whole focus of the letter and to call them to action because of the very serious threats that he heard about that was threatening the very message of the gospel itself. This brief letter, then, is a call both to rejoice in our common salvation, which he certainly does, as we've seen, as well as to contend for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. And so this morning we'll read, and I'll ask you to stand as we hear read this morning verses 1 through 4 of Jude. Jude 1 through 4, this is God's holy word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and who deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. All flesh is as the grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, bless your word to us now. 
these words written so long ago to saints under great persecution and trial are fitting for us today. And we pray your blessing upon it, that we would hear it as the word of God, that we would rejoice in it, and that we would be called as well to action and contending daily for it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I thought this week in preparation for this sermon about the, the very interesting pairings that we see in life. Many things come to mind as we think of those things that are paired together, things that perhaps on the surface would seem to be mutually exclusive. You may remember if you're my age or maybe a little bit younger, the original TV show, The Odd Couple. That's a fascinating show, brings smiles to many of our faces when you have the neat, the very, or I should say the very less than neat Oscar Madison uh, partnering with, living with the ultra neat Felix Unger. Uh, Week after week, you tuned in to watch this show because you were amazed at how these two opposites could possibly get along together. Or maybe you think of the commercial that I remember from my childhood for Reese's Peanut Butter Cup, right? A favorite of many of us. Perhaps you've eaten a lot recently. The commercial, of course, would always feature two very different people, one eating a chocolate candy bar and the other eating a jar of peanut butter. Now, you had to suspend all reason and not ask why someone would walk around town with a jar of peanut butter. But then you remember the tagline. Hey, you got peanut butter in my chocolate. Hey, you got chocolate in my peanut butter. Two great tastes that taste great together. Strange, although proven to be delicious for most of us, we enjoy that. Well, this morning, Jude is introducing us, I believe, to two uh, actions, two ideas, actions of believers that may seem to be mutually exclusive, that may seem to be two things that don't fit together, but they really do. Jude is calling the church in his day to do these two actions. The first is to call them to rejoicing, to delight, to celebrate what God has done for them in Jesus Christ. The second is to contend for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. A pairing of rejoicing and contending, A very interesting pairing to me that may again seem odd, even contradictory, but are really essential actions every day of the Christian life that all of us are called to this morning if we know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see these in especially verse 3. Note with me then the first, which is rejoicing, he says, in our common salvation. This was again his original intent. He says, I was eager to write to you about our common salvation. We don't know if he ever wrote another letter. We don't know if he ever wrote to them exclusively about that theme and calling them to rejoice with him in all that God has done. But we know that he was very eager to write to them about this. As a servant of Jesus Christ called Uh, to bear witness of Christ, called to encourage the church. He wanted to write to them to remind them and call them to rejoice in these great truths. He refers to it here as our common salvation. 
Now, we know there's nothing common about our salvation in the sense we usually understand that word. The word is that it is familiar and common to us all who know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's referring to there, that he wanted to talk about the work of God in Christ with them, to remind them of that gracious work and to cause them with him to rejoice in it. And so in this verse, he tells us his original intent, and there was great joy and delight in what the Lord has done for him. Think of it as you think of the opening verses of this little letter and how much we've already learned about how Jude understands the work of God's grace in our lives. He says again in verse 1, those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. What did he want to remind them of? He wanted to remind them of these things. He wanted to remind them that there is a change in position to those who are in Jesus Christ. Our whole position with respect to God is now completely different than it was in our natural state of enmity against God. This is how Peter writes it in 1 Peter 2. You are now, because of Jesus, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So our change of position is reflected in that word being called. We're the called out ones, called out of darkness and into the light of Jesus Christ. But it's also a change of status. We're no longer at enmity with God, as Ephesians 2 tells us, which we are by nature, dead in our trespasses and sins. But now we are beloved of God. We lived among those who were pursuing the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of their bodies, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. And so we have a change of position, being the called out ones. We have a change of status. We are now the beloved of God. And we have a change of destiny. And that really is what it means when he says, again, kept for Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to write about. Our destiny is now changed. We were on a one-way trip under the wrath of God to hell and to deserving the judgment of God. But now he has changed our destiny. He has prepared a place for us, Jesus says, and he has gone before us to make it ready. First Peter 1, that great passage as I visited Carolyn this week, we were talking about how important it is to remember in the midst of our trials, the wonders of God's grace. And I read to her this passage, which reflects these things, that our destiny is changed. We're born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, Peter writes, 
In this you greatly rejoice. Now these things, a change in status, in position, a change in destiny are worthy of our rejoicing. And and Jude's intent as he wrote this letter, as he introduced this letter by these words, as he ends the letter the way he does, is reminding them that these are the things in which we are called daily to rejoice and to remember. And we have need of this, each of us, on a regular basis as we walk alongside of one another in this fallen world. Are we remembering these things daily? Are we rejoicing in them and encouraging one another to rejoice in them? Are we learning more about God through our relationships with one another as we encourage one another in these things? Is the subject of Christ and the bounties of his grace to us a regular part of our conversations with one another? Are we reminding each other of all the blessings that God has given to us in Christ? Again, I think this is so important for us as brothers and sisters when we're walking through particularly difficult providences of this life to remember, to rejoice in all that God has done for us, to remember his mercies in Christ, to count his blessings as the psalmist so often says, and to remember who and whose we are. You may remember the words of the Apostle Paul, which is really a call to rejoice in Philippians 4. But remember, it's in the context of two women who are arguing and disrupting the unity and the peace of the church. And as a remedy to that, Paul offers counsel and advice, but he follows it up with these words, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So he wanted to write to them that he might together with them rejoice in all that God has done for them in Christ. But he was redirected. He was redirected because of the urgency of the problem that they were facing. And so secondly, he calls them alongside of rejoicing to contend earnestly, as some versions say, but to contend for the faith. This is the great purpose of this letter. It is a call for them to contend, to defend the faith once for all delivered. And as we see in the coming weeks, he will tell us in verses 4 through 16 why the faith needs to be contended for. Namely, the enemies of the cross of Christ have crept into their midst, and they are seeking to destroy that faith. He provides over the course of these verses several examples from history of how the enemies in the past sought to destroy the faith. And then in verses 17 through 23, he gives us some insight into how we are to contend for the faith ourselves. What specific actions are we to take? And then, of course, in verses 24 and 25, he ascribes all praise to God, who alone is able to keep us and will keep us by his power and might alone. 
Now, we won't delve this morning deeply into the meaning of the faith, but in order for us to basically understand it, he's not referring here to the act of believing, our faith in believing something, but he's actually talking about that body of truth that God has delivered unto us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those things which must be believed. Next time we're together studying Jude, I want to look more closely at that phrase, the faith for which we are to contend. But it is something that is once and for all delivered unto the saints. The sense of once for all is the the final word of God. It's very similar to the language of the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 1. That God has spoken in times past in many different ways, through many different means. He spoke by prophets. He spoke by visions, by dreams. But today, the writer to Hebrews says, in these last and final days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he also created the world. That faith, that body of truth spoken by God in his son is what Jude has in mind when he calls them to contend for the faith. But what does that word contend mean? It's an interesting word. It actually sounds like in the Greek, it sounds like an agonizing. And and that really is what it means. It is an agonizing fight and struggle. It is an active verb, not passive like we've seen in verse 1 when he talks about what God has done for us, called, beloved, and kept. He now calls us to action. One writer, modern paraphrase, says it is a call to fight with everything we've got. Another writer says it's an effort expended in a noble cause. And brothers and sisters, there is no more noble cause than the faith that has been delivered once for all unto us in Jesus Christ. Commentators have exhaustively looked at this word and what it means in the context and how it is that we are to fight and contend. William Jenkin, a Puritan, writes this in his very classic and thorough commentary. He writes of six things in which every believer is called to earnestly contend. Number one, he says, by praying for the success of the faith against error. That may seem obvious, but it's part of contending. Number two, by a holy example in living, therefore overthrowing wickedness and heresy. So our lives and how we live is a way that we earnestly agonize, fight with everything we have against wickedness and heresy. Number three, by encouraging those against whom Satan bends his greatest fury with regard to faith. That is, praying especially for those who are facing those trials at the fury of the enemy. By mutual exhortation, by a mutual walking with one another, a mutual call to battle and to arms with one another. Number five, by confession of faith when called and examined about it. And number six, by suffering, by suffering for the faith as God is pleased to direct our lives. Those are some of the ways in which practically we contend and fight with everything we've got. Matthew Poole, another great commentator, says, by constancy in the faith, by zeal for the truth, 
by holiness of life, by mutual exhortation, by prayer, and by suffering for the gospel against those who would pervert it. You notice there's overlap, and I don't believe they looked at each other's writings, but there's overlap. This is a common understanding of what it means to contend for the faith. It is the full engagement of the believer by the grace of God in demonstrating the power of God which he wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. Paul writes to Timothy in the last letter regarding the enemies of the cross of Christ and of the gospel. And listen to what he writes. But understand this, he says, in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, not loving good, brutal, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. On a side note, that's probably how these false teachers crept in unnoticed among them. They had the appearance of godliness. They had an outward showing of allegiance and loyalty to Jesus Christ, but they were denying in their lives the power thereof. And then he charges Timothy. This is a charge to contend. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, that's a call to contend. To Timothy, mild, mannered, often fearful, often weak in his disposition, and yet Paul calls him to contend. And he does so by calling him to stay close to that which he has learned, to contend for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. So you have first this understanding and this idea of his eagerness to write this to them. You have the understanding here as well of the contending for the faith that he calls them to, the rejoicing in the gospel. Thirdly, you have the motivation here in this verse as well. I don't want you to miss this because I think it's important. Beloved, he begins, beloved. There was an urgency for him that came from within him. As an individual inspired by the Holy Spirit, he loved these people. Beloved means dearly loved. Dearly loved, not merely by God, as verse 1 says, but by Jude himself. He had great love for them and great concern for these believers. And here we see, I think, as you think of others who wrote the scriptures under God's inspiration, think of Peter, think of the Apostle Paul, and how often he told the ones to whom he wrote how much he loved them. It's one of the marks of an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to love his people, to love the people of God. You know, we have coming up as a congregation the election of officers in our church, men called and set apart by God to serve as elders and deacons in the church. 
Let me encourage you in this way as we think of the motivation of Jude. Look at those men. Talk to those men. Determine and discern for yourself. Will these be men who will love the people of God? Who will love them faithfully? Faithfully in order to call them to obedience to the things of Christ? Faithful to call them to rejoice and to remind them of the truth of the gospel? Faithful to call them and alongside of them to contend against error? Would these men love you that much that if error crept into our church unnoticed, they would be among the first, if not the first, to stand to contend for the faith against error, to guard the sheep and the flock of Jesus Christ? All good towards our fellow brothers or sisters in Jesus Christ is rooted and motivated by love, the love first to Christ And then for that truth, that faith which he has delivered unto us, that body of belief, what we are to believe, that then leads to our loving of one another. You see, in both of these things, we see the motivation of love. He wanted to write to them to call them to rejoice because he loved them. And together with them, he wanted to experience the joy of remembering what God has done for us in Christ. But his love also drove him to change the whole focus of his letter because he saw the danger that was facing the church. The gospel, the faith was being undermined by these false teachers. And so he calls them together with him to contend for that faith. Perhaps it's obvious, but he's writing to church members. He's not writing to pastors. He's not writing to elders. He's not writing to deacons. He's not writing to the officers at all. He's writing to the church, the common, in the pew person in every church called to do these very things. First to rejoice, then to contend. And so it is the duty of every believer, not merely those who are called as officers. As we conclude these three points, I want to remind us of something that one writer, I think, brought to my attention, at least in my study, that I thought was very important to say. He writes this, it would be wrong for us, he says, wrong for us to think that in issuing this call to arms to contend, that he has totally abandoned his deeper longing to revel in and rejoice in the greatness of God's salvation. As we work, he writes, our way through this letter, and we see his thoughts unfold, we shall notice that the very thing which the church is called upon to uphold and defend is what actually upholds and defends the church. The survival of the gospel does not depend on the strength and defensive powers of the church, but vice versa. The survival of the church depends upon the strength of the gospel and its place in our lives. We rejoice in, we contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints because we recognize that in that truth which God has revealed, which sustains us, sustains the church, And we'll see the very promise of Jesus come true, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. 
which is the pillar and foundation of the truth. The pillar and foundation of the truth. That's why Jude is so concerned. Destroy the gospel, you destroy the church. Uphold, contend for, defend the gospel in all of its simplicity, in all of its points. You uphold and defend the very church of the Lord Jesus Christ because the one supports is the pillar and buttress of the truth, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, one of the great errors, and I think Mark Johnson in his comments there is really making, one of the great errors is that we see these two things, rejoicing in the faith and contending for the faith as being mutually exclusive. They're really not. In, very, in the very contending for the faith, we are enabled all the more to rejoice in the faith. It happens concurrently as we see God's faithfulness played out in this battle that we face. I think of so many illustrations of this rejoicing and contending. I think first of the Apostle Paul. You remember him in Philippians chapter 1. You, you know the context of Philippians. He's, he's in prison. He's in jail. And you remember how from prison and from the opposition and the suffering that he was experiencing, he writes from the Philippian or from the Roman prison. And he's speaking about Christ being preached by some who are doing it out of selfish ambition. And this is what he says. What then? What then does it matter? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. I think about Paul as well, writing to his young son in the faith, Timothy, again, in his final letter. He says these words to him. You then, my child. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust then to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in the suffering of Christ as a good soldier. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crop. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This saying, he says, is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, he will also, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Over and over again, Paul sees these Two ideas, rejoicing in the gospel and contending for it as side by side. Peter knows it well also, as he writes in his second letter, so similar to Jude. I intend always, he says, to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. And I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder 
to stir up your hearts by the gospel that you might rejoice in it, to stir up your hearts in the gospel that you might contend for it. Or consider the countless examples of the saints of old who were called to give their lives for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. Gaius Julius Verus Maximinus was the Roman emperor from 235 to 238. He was the first non-Roman to become emperor, and he initiated immediately a period of persecution, targeting especially the leaders of the church in those days. Among those that he tried and condemned was the elderly Julius. And here is how that, that went, the account of his trial. Julius Maximus said, I see that you are a sensible and a serious man. Take my advice, therefore, and sacrifice to the gods. I will not do as you desire, nor run into sin and eternal punishment. Well, if you think that sin, then let it be laid to my charge. I will apply force to you that it may not look as if you have complied willingly. Then you can go home with no further anxiety. The offer was all the more seductive because it was so kindly intended. But Julius, save Saul behind the indulgent governor, the evil power which spoke through him, you cannot draw me away, he said, from my eternal Lord. I cannot deny God. Give sentence against me, therefore, as a Christian. Unless you will be obedient to the imperial orders and sacrifice, I will cut your head off. That is a good thought, Julius said. I beseech you, religious governor, by the health of the emperors, to put it into execution and to give sentence upon me that my desires may be fulfilled. You are in such a hurry to die. You think that you will suffer for some praiseworthy object? If I am permitted to suffer in this way, everlasting glory will await me. If you were suffering for your country and for your laws, you would have everlasting praise. It is indeed for the laws that I shall suffer, but the laws are God's laws. Laws which are bequeathed to you by a dead man who was crucified? See what a fool you are to make more of a dead man than of living emperors. He died for our sins, Julius said, that he might bestow on us eternal life. But he is God who endures forever, and whoever confesses him shall have eternal life, and whoever denies him eternal punishment. I am sorry for you, and I advise you to sacrifice and live among us. If I live with you, it is death to me, but if I die, I live. You have chosen death rather than life. I have chosen death for a moment, and then life everlasting. The following sentence was then pronounced, Julius, who refuses to obey the orders of the emperors, is to receive capital punishment. He was taken out and he was executed. His last words were, O Lord Jesus Christ, for whose name's sake I suffer thus, vouchsafe to set my spirit among thy saints. And he was then beheaded. With joy, rejoicing in the truths of the gospel, refusing to turn from them, contending for the faith as he faced death is what Jude is talking about. And it's not just back in 235 AD. It's every day since then and to our own day. 
the voice of the martyrs, that great ministry that makes the uh, lives of the martyrs in our current day uh, visible to us and to our eyes and prayers, wrote this recently. Since 2011, Boko Haram, one of the largest Islamic militant groups in Africa, has conducted terrorist attacks on religious and political groups, local police, military, as well as indiscriminately attacking civilians in busy markets and villages. You may remember in the news the kidnapping of over 200 young girls from a school in April 2014. It drew international attention. And because of negotiations between them and the government brokered by International Committee for the Red Cross, 103 of those 200 girls have since been released. They tell the story of one woman whose name is Rebecca, who lives in Nigeria. She and her village were viciously attacked by Boko Haram. Rebecca and her husband were married several years before, and their church gave them a Bible as a gift. They read it together every day, and then they read it with their two children, hiding the truth of God in their hearts. One day, as she came back to her village from an early walk with her young daughter, she could only watch as Boko Haram militants killed her husband and son and burned her home. A few days later, as she was allowed to return to her home, she searched the charred remains of that home, and she found the Bible that she and her husband had received on their wedding day. And she said this, I still use this Bible. And there's a picture of her in church with the charred Bible. And she said, it reminds me, it reminds me of God's faithfulness. Suffering under the great persecution and yet learning both to rejoice and contend for the faith by the grace of God. Doing them at the same time, two oddly interesting actions joined together in one on behalf of every believer. This is what we're called to do this morning. Is that how you're living this morning? Rejoicing, contending? Are you rejoicing in the glories of the gospel as you consider his mercies to you? Are you contending for the faith that was once for all delivered unto the saints? There is one who loves you now, who is calling you to live in such a way for his own sake, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has charged you to do so by his power at work within you. Take up your calling then, believer. Rejoice, rejoice and contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered unto the saints. Let us pray. Our Father, it is indeed love that compels us one to the other to call one another to rejoice and contend for this faith. And in our day, we can see the increase, the threat of persecution, the mockery of those who hate Christ, who hate his gospel all around us. And no doubt the coming times where the very words of Paul to Timothy will come true in our own experience as well. And so bless us, give us every grace that we might always be those who rejoice and contend, who walk with those two actions side by side, common in our individual and corporate life, that you would protect and preserve this church as well from those who would seek to do its harm. And we pray all of this with great hope and confidence in the one who has called us 
the one who has loved us, the one who keeps us for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.